open up your copy of God's word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians. We are returning uh, to 1 Corinthians this morning, but we're going to jump ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Before we read uh, the passage together, let me pray. Heavenly Father, our ears have been filled with news this week, uh, news about the virus, but you have news for us this morning, news about your son and his death for our sins and his victorious resurrection. And we ask that by your spirit that you'd give us minds and hearts to receive this wonderful good news of Jesus Christ crucified and raised. And help us to understand with increasing depth and clarity what this good news means for our lives and our future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Well, I wonder if you've ever played the game Telephone. We used to play it all of the time in youth group. Get a line of people, longer the line the better. And someone would whisper into the ear of one person at the end of the line a message that then was transmitted down the line one person at a time whispering into the person's ear next to them until it got to the other end of the line and that person would announce out loud the message that they thought they had received from those behind them, and very often the message at the end wasn't at all the message that was communicated at the beginning. Well, something like that has happened in Corinth. Paul delivered the gospel to the Corinthians. However, he didn't whisper it into their ears. He communicated the gospel by an open statement of the truth. But as it was passed on, the message had become distorted. And, and these distortions were not funny at all, like they often are in the game of telephone. They had 
dreadful consequences. If you look at verse 12, just outside of our passage, you'll see something of the distortion. Paul asks them, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Paul came to Corinth and preached that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. But somehow, some of them had, become, had come to the point of saying that there is no resurrection from the dead. And Paul will go on in this very chapter to show them some of the dreadful consequences of that line of thinking. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ himself is risen from the dead. And if Christ is not risen from the dead, then we are still in our sins and above all people to be most pitied. We're just wasting our time. What are we doing here if Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead? That's what he'll go on to say. But today in verses 1 through 11, he, he lays down the fundamentals of the gospel. He reminds the Corinthians of the simple message of the gospel before correcting them where they're wrong. He reminds them of what it is that they have been taught before confronting them. And so... What we have in these verses is a remarkably clear summary of the gospel of the Christian faith. And I want us to consider these verses under three headings. In verses 1 through 3, I want us to think about the genre of the gospel. What sort of, uh, what sort of word is the gospel? That's verses 1 through 3, the, the genre of the gospel. And then in verses 3 through 4, I want us to consider the content of the gospel. What is the gospel about? And then in verses 5 through 11, I want us to think about the trustworthiness of the gospel. Is this a message we can trust? I don't know about you, but uh, I'm, I'm prone to forgetfulness. I can easily forget things. Um, and so I rely upon helps. Uh, I used to use an app called Wonderlist, which stopped working. So more recently, I've started to use an app called Reminders, where I keep a list of, of tasks and things that I need to get done. And I have different folders in there for pastoral responsibilities and pastoral care, uh, responsibilities with session, responsibilities at the level of presbytery, responsibilities with the DMIN program, things I want to make sure I'm doing to take care of my family and home. And uh, I, I really rely upon that app to, to keep me on task, to not forget what needs to get done. And then even apart from that, I, I also rely upon Google calendars to make sure I'm keeping my appointments and making sure that I'm not dropping the ball when it comes to meeting with you or making other appointments. And if it weren't for some of these helps, I think, I think I'd be lost. I would forget all sorts of responsibilities and appointments that I have. And uh, just in case you have been the victim of my forgetfulness, let me just go ahead and say I'm sorry right now. But we need reminders to stay on track, or at least I know I do. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is writing to remind us so that we do not forget, so that we don't get off track. We may think that we are not prone to forget, but, but truth be told, it is so easy to forget, to stray from, or to become fuzzy about the gospel. And so Paul is writing to get our attention back on the message that we need to know and to have absolute clarity about. 
And the first thing that we need to be clear about is the genre of the gospel, what sort of word it is. What kind of word is the gospel? That, that might seem like a strange question to ask, but it's actually a very important question to ask and answer. You know, the, the word gospel has become so popular in Christian circles today that I think we've kind of lost this, the meaning and significance of it. Um, we sort of attach the word gospel to anything that we want to say is good. But the word gospel actually has a very precise and particular meaning. meaning. It used to be a military term. And so a, a soldier, a runner, would come back from the battlefield, back to the city, back to the capital, with an announcement, with a euangelion, with a gospel, a, a report of victory. And that's exactly what the gospel is. That is why Paul can say in verse 2 that it is the gospel I preached to you. It's something Paul proclaimed. It's something he announced. It's a message that he spoke. And so it's very clear that the gospel is not good advice. It's very clear that the gospel isn't uh, something that we do. We cannot do the gospel. We cannot live the gospel. We, we can speak the gospel. We can announce and proclaim the gospel. We can herald the gospel because it is a word. It is an announcement. And then notice how Paul says in verse 3 that this is a message that he received and delivered. In other words, Paul didn't make it up. The gospel did not originate in the mind of the Apostle Paul. He didn't fabricate it. He received it and he delivered it as a herald. And a herald doesn't take a message he receives from an authority and then tinker with it and add his own opinions to the message. No, he is called upon to take the message from the king and faithfully distribute it. And that's how Paul saw himself as an apostle, as an apostle, as a herald of the gospel that he received. But, you know, today you'll hear some people argue along these lines. You know, in early Christianity, there wasn't a single unifying message. There were competing messages. Uh, There were various parties competing with one another and and what we call today or what we know today as orthodox Christianity is really just the opinions of those who uh, had the power, right? Who are the winners of history, who are able to snuff out the minority reports. And, And so what Paul taught or perhaps what someone else said Paul taught is just one version of Christianity among various Christianities. These were all competing versions. And it's not actually possible to get back to the Christianity of Jesus himself. That that version of Christianity has been lost to history. Well, I just want to point out that that's not at all how Paul understood things. He did not view himself as the inventor of a novel message that was competing with other messages. He didn't make this stuff up. 
he delivered and received, or he uh, received and delivered this message. And notice he says in verse 3 that this, this message he received and delivered, the message that he proclaimed and has been preserved for us, is a matter of first importance. Now, it's not a matter of, of first importance in terms of a, a sequence of things that are important. It's not as though you've got to start with the, the gospel and then once you've got that down, move on to more important things. The gospel is not like the foundation of a home that you need to build first and then once it's completed, you can start building other things on top of it. That's not at all what Paul means. Paul means the gospel is of first significance. It is of first importance in the church and in the Christian life. The gospel is the, the fertile soil into which we are planted and grow ever deeper roots. Uh, the gospel is the, the nutrient-rich food on which our souls are constantly being fed. You see, in the Christian life, we don't ever move beyond the gospel or past the gospel to more important things. This is it. It's, it's not beginner truth for Christians who are just starting out. It's the truth that we always need to remember and know and with ever increasing depth and clarity apply to our lives and hearts. And so no matter what stage we are at in the Christian life, the gospel is of first and primary importance. Let me just think of a, a couple of illustrations of that. Maybe you're struggling with, with fear right now in light of COVID-19. Maybe you're afraid of what it might mean for yourself, for your family, for your job, for your future security. Maybe you're even wondering what it might mean for your church. Well, what, what is going to help you with your fears? More toilet paper in your bathroom or more food in your refrigerator? Well, as nice as that would be, that's really not going to do anything for your fears, is it? Now, what, what can truly calm your fears and give you confidence in the midst of this crisis is the reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and what it means for your life right now and what it means for your life to come. Or maybe, maybe you lack joy in the Christian life. And to be sure, we can struggle to have joy in our lives for various reasons. But is it possible, is it possible that some of us lack joy in our lives because we have made the mistake of thinking in simplistic terms about the gospel as something that we just sort of grasp intellectually and then it has nothing to do with the rest of our lives? Could it be that our lack of joy is connected to our looking elsewhere for joy and comfort and assurance and satisfaction. Maybe, maybe it's because we so easily forget the matter of first importance from which we should never stray and never forget the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul wants us to understand that the priority of the church and the priority of the Christian life must and always be 
holding fast to the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the genre of the gospel, what kind of word is it? It is an announcement of something done. It is an announcement of something that has been done outside of us, a proclamation of good news. It's the message Paul received from God, actually from the risen Christ, by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's a message of first and fundamental importance. It is, if you like, the air we breathe as Christians. And so that's the genre of the gospel. It is an announcement of good news. And now I want us to secondly think about the content of the gospel. Because if the gospel is a message, what is the content of that message? What is the gospel about? Look again at verses 3 and 4. Here's Paul's brief, simple summary. And I think you'll notice that there are four characteristics here to Paul's gospel summary. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now that's the gospel in summary. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Let's just think about these four summaries or or four characteristics of Paul's summary of the gospel. The first is, I think, right on the face of things, I hope we all see it, that the gospel is all about Christ. It's all about Christ and his work. It's so clear here, isn't it? Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose again from the dead. But you see what that means. Catch the significance of that for us. The gospel is not... First and foremost about us, although it has important implications for our lives. The gospel is is not about something we do, although the pronouncement of the gospel lays upon us responsibility to respond, repent, and believe. But the gospel is about Christ and about what he has done in his office as mediator. It's, It's all about Christ and his work. And this is actually what makes the gospel such such tremendously good news. Because if you believe that the gospel at the end of the day is do this, you know, believe the gospel, then do this. Believe the gospel, then say this prayer. Do the, believe the gospel and fulfill this religious ritual or or whatever. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not believe and do this and you will be saved. The gospel is not a transaction where we do in order to get. Where we fulfill a list of obligations in order to earn something from God. That is not how the gospel works. You see, the gospel is a person. It is good news about Christ and his work about how God himself in the person of the Son has come in our humanity to do what we could never do for ourselves. It is Christ's death and resurrection and all that that means for us and for the world. It is good news about Jesus. But notice the second characteristic of these 
uh, these verses. The second characteristic of this gospel summary is that the gospel is about our sin. Catch how Paul put that. Christ died for our sins. In other words, the good news about Jesus is how he deals with our greatest problem, our greatest need. But you know, to many today, this doesn't sound like very good news. Maybe you're even thinking, oh, Pastor Jared mentioned sin, now he's going to start talking about it and how bad of a person I am and so on. And I've heard this all before. Well, let me just gently ask you to ponder something for yourself. Could it be, could it be that the gospel, the good news about Jesus doesn't sound like very good news to you because you have yet to understand how serious your sin problem really is? There are lots of other problems in the world today that we have convinced ourselves are more pressing, more serious, more dire, deserving more of our attention. And that's why there are different gospels out there today, which are really no gospel at all. And so just for one example, let me, let me mention what I'll call the gospel of self-fulfillment. Now, there's a secular version of the gospel of self-fulfillment that places you as the central character. And the greatest problem is that you have been kept from discovering and expressing your true self. And the good news of this false gospel is your personal story of finding happiness and liberation as you've followed your heart and learned to express your true inner self, opposing anyone and anything that has stood in your way. That's the secular gospel of self-fulfillment. But there's actually a religious version of the gospel of self-fulfillment. And just like the secular one, it makes you the main character, you the center of attention. But it envisions you weighed down by the bondage, perhaps, of, of your past, the expectations of your parents, or perhaps a religious community, which all of those expectations are deemed to be legalistic um, and restraining. But Jesus is your, your friend who rescues you from all of those shackles and sets you free on a discovery, uh, a journey to discover your true self. And with Jesus by your side, someone who would, would never ever tell you no or say no to anything that you would want to be or do because he loves you. That's the religious version of the gospel of self-fulfillment that is so prevalent in the world today. But dear friends, you see, I hope you understand that lack of self-fulfillment is not our greatest problem. My deepest problem is not that I need some help self, uh, sorting myself out, discovering my true self, realizing who I am and actualizing my identity. No, my deepest problem is sin before a holy God who made me and sustains my every breath and to whom I am ultimately accountable to. My deepest problem is that 
Sin renders me inexcusably guilty before God and hopelessly corrupt. I stand before God in my sin, justly condemned. And by nature, I am hell-bent on sinning. And apart from Christ, who reconciles me to God and sets me free from sin's power, there is only condemnation and slavery. There's no way out from the sentence of condemnation and a life of bondage to sin. That is my fundamental deepest problem, and it's yours too. And you see, Paul is saying this good news about Jesus is so important, so fundamental, because it is God's gracious answer to that very problem. It's it's our sin problem that Jesus deals with, not just our need for fulfillment, which incidentally we do find in Jesus Christ. But the gospel speaks to the issue of sin's guilt and sin's power. And this is why we so desperately need Christ, because he alone can take away my guilt and he alone can set me free from the power of reigning sin, that I might walk in newness of life. And so whether you're not yet a Christian or whether you've been a Christian for for years, you see, Christ is the one that we all so desperately need. He alone is God's answer to sin because in him there is pardon and acceptance with God and in him there is freedom from sin and new life to be found in him. And so why would we look somewhere else and why would we think that something or someone is more important than him? The gospel, it's the message of Christ dealing with our sin problem. Seems like a good place to end. Perfect timing then, huh?
the worst we are at public speaking and just talking in general and would rather hear like this. Yeah. Most of us sit down and people are kind of used to that, at least on YouTube. But it's kind of haircut also. Yeah, it's hard. Be, I don't know, 15 minutes or so. Okay. All right, so I'll just do that paragraph again. Right. You can tell Nathan that. And so whether you're not yet a Christian, or you've been a Christian for years, Christ is the one that we all desperately need. He is God's answer to our sin problem. He alone can provide us with pardon before God and righteous standing before God. He alone can set us free from the dominion of sin and give us new life. So why would we look to someone or something else? Why would we ever think that something is more important than him? The gospel, it's the good news of Christ dealing with our deepest problem, sin. And now let's think about the third characteristic of this gospel summary. And it's this, that the message of the gospel is about Christ's death and resurrection. Paul says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and rose again. It is good news because my condemnation and my corruption in sin is dealt with in the death and resurrection of Christ. In dying, he sealed my pardon and broke the power of reigning sin, and in rising, he became the source of my righteousness and new life. And so when I am found in him, I am fully pardoned and accepted by God. I am set free from sin's tyranny and given new life that I might live unto God. Now we call these two graces the, the, the gifts of justification and sanctification. Christ died and rose again for our justification and our sanctification. Let's just try to unpack those two things very quickly. To be justified means that I have been forgiven and accepted by God. And this is achieved by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in this way. In his death, my sin's judgment was laid upon him. So that all that my sin deserved was received by him upon the cross. Christ took the role of sin bearer and substitute in my place condemned he stood. God made him to be sin for us. So that God's righteous wrath against my sin was poured out upon his head. Utterly satisfying the, just, the justice of God. 
So that now any who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation, Paul says. And so in Christ I stand forgiven, but not just forgiven. I'm counted righteous in God's sight, accepted because after living a perfectly sinless life in full obedience to the law of God and after laying down his life for us on the cross, in his resurrection, Jesus was vindicated. He was declared to be the righteous son of God so that as I am found in him, I am counted righteous in God's sight. His righteousness is my righteousness. So that when the Father looks upon me, he sees nothing less than the very righteousness of his own Son. And so I receive this full pardon and this status of righteousness before God apart from any work that I do. I don't contribute to my justification in any way whatsoever. I receive it as a gift as I trust in Christ. And this amazing gift of justification, pardon and acceptance with God, is secured by the death and resurrection of Christ. But Christ's death and resurrection also secures for his people the grace of sanctification. Now, sanctification is the renewal of our nature so that more and more in Christ we live unto God and become more like Jesus, reflecting his moral glory until one day we are fully perfected to his image in the life to come. But you see, uh, this too is achieved by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 6 that if you are a Christian, and maybe you've never thought about it this way, but if you are a Christian, you died some 2,000 years ago. Paul says that the death Christ died, he died to sin. And the life he now lives, he lives to God. And Paul says, you are in union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. So that as he died to sin, the power of sin was broken in your life. And as you are raised with him, you are raised to walk in newness of life. Now, yes, of course, sin remains as we live in these bodies. But sin no longer reigns. Sin no longer rules. Sin is no longer our Lord and Master. Now, what tremendous news that is. A message about Christ. A message about our sin. A message about the death and resurrection of Christ. Which secures for us a new status before God. And sets us free from sin's dominion. So that we can be what we were made to be and have been remade to be, image bearers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice quickly here the fourth characteristic of this gospel summary, that it's a message according to the scriptures. Did you catch how Paul repeats that twice in verses 3 and 4? This is good news that is not according to Paul's imagination. This isn't good news according to man-made tradition or man-made philosophy or, man -made opin or man's opinions. It is not according to groupthink. 
It's according to the scriptures. This is good news, therefore, according to the inscripturated word of God. It's based on the Bible. It's according to the Bible. It has all happened according to plan. A plan established before time and revealed to God's people beforehand. And so Paul is appealing to the authority and reliability of the scriptures as he is correcting the Corinthians. And just run through the Old Testament very quickly with me and think about what did God say beforehand about the promised Messiah? In the very beginning, he promised that a savior would come. He would be born a seed of the woman, crush the serpent's head even as his heel was bruised. He would be a substitutionary sacrifice for his people. He would be a Passover lamb whose whose blood would provide a covering, protection from the judgment of God so that God's people could go free. He would be a, a prophet who would speak the very word of God to God's people. He would be a, a son of David who would sit upon David's throne and rule over God's kingdom forever. He would be a priest who would provide a sacrifice once for all that would do away with the whole system of Old Testament sacrifices. And he would be a suffering servant upon whom the Lord would, would lay the iniquity of us all and by whose stripes we would be healed. And you see over and over again throughout the whole Old Testament, God is saying, this is who will come. This is what he's like. This is what he will do. And this is what it will result in. And that's why the New Testament is infused with Old Testament references and allusions. To say, don't you see, this is all according to the scriptures. It's all according to God's plan. This is the gospel of God revealed in redemptive history. And I think when we grasp that, and we, and we see it for ourselves, we can begin to say, this book, this word, is something that I can trust, something I can stake my life and my future upon, because the God who speaks in this book never, ever fails to keep his word. And that leads us right into the third thing that I want us to consider in this passage. And that is the trustworthiness of the gospel. Can I trust the gospel? I want us to think about that important question. Can I trust it or is it just, you know, once upon a time fairy tales? Well, consider a few verses with me. The first is, is right here in our text in verses 5 through 8. Right, there were some Corinthians saying, there's no resurrection. Just take a look at how Paul deals with it. He's saying, no, 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 no. The gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and raised, you can believe it. And here's one reason why. Now he's speaking to early Christians living in the first century. And he says, this Jesus that I have proclaimed to you has appeared. Right? He has been seen bodily after his death. By Cephas and then the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 other brothers at once, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So you see what Paul is saying. He's saying to them, you question the resurrection? 
People, people saw the resurrected Christ. You can, you can go and talk to them. He appeared to, to Peter and James and the twelve. And uh, last of all to me. We have seen him. We've met Jesus alive from the grave. This is not make-believe. This is not a made-up story. This is history. Jesus is alive. So yes, you can trust the gospel. And you know, so many accounts in the New Testament read this way. Think about how, how Luke begins his gospel to Theophilus. He, he tells uh, his audience, Theophilus, that uh, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed these things closely for some time past, to write down an orderly account for you that you may have certainty considering uh, concerning the things you have been taught. You see what Luke is saying at the start of his gospel. He's saying, I'm writing down an orderly account for you, Theophilus. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. I've done my thorough research. Here is what happened. Or think about how the Apostle John begins his first epistle. He writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. You see, this isn't once upon a time fairy tales. This is history. Uh, John is making that clear. This is history faithfully, faithfully recorded as Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. And so you can trust this good news about Jesus, but there's a, another question that you might ask yourself. Should I trust this message about Jesus? And I want to suggest and argue, yes, yes, you absolutely should. And here's why. Take a look at verse 2 in our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says that the Corinthians who trusted in this message, who received this message in faith about Jesus, were being saved. God was doing something remarkable in their lives. He was saving them. And if you want a clearer picture of what that might look like, then you need go no further than verses 9 through 11, where Paul begins to speak about himself and what's happened to him as the Lord has saved him. In verse 9, he says he's not even worthy to be called an apostle because he was a persecutor of Christ's church. Paul hated Jesus, and therefore he hated Jesus' followers. And he made it his life mission to see to the annihilation of the church. Uh, that, That was what he really wanted. So we're not talking here about someone who was seeking after Jesus, who was friendly to Christianity. He was positively hostile to the Christian faith until one day he was traveling on the road to Damascus and Christ appeared to him in his resurrected glory. And so Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Seeing Jesus alive from the dead, you see, turned this persecutor, of the church into a preacher of Christ who is prepared to lay down his life for the sake of the gospel. So should you believe this good news? Yes, yes, you should, because God saves 
helpless sinners, like the Corinthians, who were prideful, arrogant, immoral, fighting with one another. They were a mess. They were being saved by this good news. And Paul, the persecutor, was utterly changed and transformed by this good news of Jesus crucified and raised. So don't you think, dear friends, don't you think that as we receive this good news about Jesus, that God is also able to do something remarkable in our lives? We have the assurance that we will go from being guilty to being fully pardoned. We will go from death to life. We'll go from being outsiders to being insiders, uh, citizens of God's kingdom. We'll go from being children of wrath to being declared to be the children of God. We will have um, Christ's own spirit dwelling within our hearts. So should you trust in Jesus? Yes, you absolutely should. And the gospel calls us to do that today. Paul says at the beginning of this passage, this is the gospel I preached, which you received. Now received means, in this case, to believe. And actually, that's all you need to do. It's not receive Jesus plus do 10 different things. It's not receive Jesus plus try to be a good person. It's not receive Jesus plus try to be uh, religiously faithful or something like that. Jesus crucified and raised, dear friend, is all that you need. Jesus' death and resurrection is all you need for full pardon and acceptance with God. It's all you need for freedom from sin and new life oriented to God. It's all you need. And if you will therefore but receive him, rest your life and your future upon him, you will be saved. So yes, you can and you should believe the gospel. But the pressing question is, will you? Will you receive this good news. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that Jesus Christ died for our sins and was raised from the dead. We thank you that he sits in glory at your right hand and has promised to return one day and along with him raise us up to glory, to resurrection life. We thank you that you have proven you're utterly, utter, utterly trustworthy. That we can stake our lives upon this gospel. And know that as we receive Christ in humble faith. That you will be faithful to what you have promised to do. And so therefore Lord we pray that you would help us come with bended knee to Christ Jesus. To give up on pathetic excuses. And to bow down before Christ and receive him as our Lord and our Savior. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.